You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and today's seminar Thieves in Law, Russian Organized Crime. My name is Hedvig Peterson, and I am the program manager of the Russia and Eurasia program. Uh, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce today's panel with Mark Galliotti and Erik Andermo. Uh, Erik is an analyst here at the Institute, and Mark, you are a senior re- researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague, yet based in London, and also, I would say, the expert uh, of uh, transnational crime and Russian security affairs, but also, just to mention one, a former advisor of the British Foreign Office. Um, before uh, we start, I will just uh, have a little reminder note that if you'd like to share any content from this seminar uh, on Twitter, please tag us uh, UI Sweden and also share the hashtag UI event. Uh, so let's start. Mark, you have recently published your book, The Vori, Russian uh, Super Mafia. Uh, I recommend everybody to read it if, if you haven't done it yet. It's very interesting. Um, And this book is a result of almost three decades of uh, research, I would say. Uh, And you start every chapter and every sub-chapter of this book with a quote or a Russian (coughs) proverb. Uh, And I got inspired by this. So I will take one of the quotes from a middle-ranking criminal, Grant, uh, who says, I am not a scholar, but I can tell you this. Russians have always been the best criminals around. And with this mark, please start. Thank you very much indeed, and I'm delighted and honoured to be here, not least to obviously pimp my book, um, which incidentally will be available in Swedish next year. Just just mentioning that point. Anyway, yes, thanks for that introduction, Um, and let's talk about how how good the Russians are. By the way, these things always say, can can you talk for X amount of time, and there's never, ever a clock in the building. So my phone is here. It's not that I'm checking my email. It's just I'm just reminding myself of the time from time to time. Um, are, are, are the Russians the best gangsters? Well, they would, they would like to think so. Um, I, would, I would say that we should remember, first of all, that Italian organized crime is still the world's biggest combine um, in terms of, sort of turnover and, and almost in terms of, of global spread. But what I think has been true is the extent to which Russia has for so long and so well been a criminalized country. And I think that's that's where, in some ways, I, I, I'd like to focus. Um, although, sort of in, the, in the book, I, I, I go into a lot of detail about the historical pedigree. I don't really want to get sort of too deeply enmeshed in that. But I do, on the other hand, want to start. One of the ways in which I start the book is that it, it says something that Russian popular literature started with a gangster. Vankakain, 18th century bandit. He was a, a serf, in other words, a sort of land slave, who managed to get his freedom, strongly suspected, by blackmailing his master, ran away to the city, became a notorious bandit, in due course was caught by the authorities, took advantage of an amnesty to essentially bec- buy his freedom by becoming an informant for the, the Siska the sort of primordial early Russian sort of criminal police. What happened was, though, that, and this is a sort of a classic issue, the informant increasingly became the handler. He corrupted the police officers who were meant to be running and using him. But over time, what happened is these corrupt um, police officials became greedier and greedier. And that pushed Van Kakein into more and more daring um, raids and crimes, which in due course meant that he was caught again, and this time he, he was killed. Now, the interesting thing about Van Kakein is precisely his story became the, the focus of a whole series of, first of all, oral folk tales, and then actually written stories, um, both kind of the simple, almost cartoon types sort of accounts which would circulate in, in, in sort of drinking dens, as well as more sort of uh, austere and elegant accounts. And as I said, the, van- the story of Anchor Kane was basically the first point where we can really identify 
popular Russian literature, Russian literature that was not written purely for the elite, but for a wider audience. Um, and in part, it's because it illustrates one of the key points, which is still important today in understanding how Russians themselves think of their gangsters. Vanka Kane was an honest thief, by which I mean, or by which the Russians mean, that he made no bones about what he was. Vanka Kane was not some kind of Slavic Robin Hood, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. He stole from the rich because the rich are the people who have the money, and he stole for his own benefit. He made no bones about what he was, and that makes him an honest criminal in comparison with the dishonest criminals, the ones who wear the suits or the uniforms or maybe the clerical vestments, the ones who are meant to be better than that, the ones who run the country, run the police, run the church or whatever, and yet who are also stealing. Honest thief versus dishonest thief. The honest thief is not a good person, but at least you know where they are. There are no pretenses. And in some ways, the, the, the implication is that you live in a world in which basically everyone is a thief. The only question is whether they're honest about it. And this is something that, that you know, has in, in, in a variety of ways has sort of taken root in, in, in popular culture and still obtains today. So really, these are the three themes that I'm going to talk about. The state seeking to use organized crime to its own purposes. In turn, organized crime trying to see how it can manipulate and use the state to its ends, and the impact this has on, on not just popular culture, but popular Russian conceptions about the world and about how their own country operates and how all countries operate, quite frankly. Now, again, I, I won't go into detail about the historical pedigree um, of, of Russian organized crime, but on the other hand, some sense of it is necessary, so, so bear with me as a very high-speed canter through a couple of centuries. What we think of as Russian organized crime today really has its roots in the late 19th century, in the miserable, overcrowded slums of a rapidly industrializing and urbanizing Russia. Particularly the so-called yami, the pits, the, the worst of these slums, which were in effect no-go areas. Um, we were having a conversation over lunch about the sort of the talk about no-go areas in Sweden. No, these were real no-go areas. Um, these were areas where if the police went in at all, they went in by the platoon carrying rifles. And more often than not, the only reason they would go in would be one first thing in the morning just to pull out that night's crop of dead bodies, or two when basically the denizens of the pits had become too problematic, too annoying, too well-to-do, respectable folk and needed to be taught a lesson. And either way, the police essentially went in as an invading army rather than anything else. So on the whole, these areas were, were left to their own miserable, squalid devices. This is places like the Hithrovka um, in Moscow, in which it always entertains me, you, you will now find the Australian Embassy, sitting right next to one of the largest and most famous brothels in all of Moscow purely coincidental, um, or the Haymarket in, in St. Petersburg. And here, in what were these exactly very, very overcrowded conditions, what emerged was a criminal subculture called, known as the Vorovskoy Mir, the thieves' world. Then there's no coincidence that the word Mir, world, also means peace, but more importantly also refers to a peasant commune. Now, as I said, th this was a subculture, not an organization. Um, this was just basically increasingly people, people who kind of cohered together, who were largely but not rarely exclusively criminals. And they acquired a certain kind of common code, a common slang, and a common visual language of tattoos. Remember, this was basically still a largely illiterate society, especially in the slums. So the using tattoos as a way of kind of encoding a variety of different meanings was a way of getting around the fact that you couldn't exactly carry an identity, do identity document that said, I'm a fully paid up member of the thieves subculture. So they would have tattoos on their fingers that said what particular crimes they committed. So in effect, they, ha they had their resume on, on their hands for all to see. But it says something that, that their tattoos were visible. There are many other criminal communities that have um, you know, 
a sort of a, a tattoo culture. If you take that, for example, the Japanese Yakuza, they have these extraordinarily elegant tattoos. But the interesting thing is their tattoos end sort of close to the neck and on the arm so that they can be in the baths with their fellow gangsters and everyone can admire each other's criminal tattoos. But then they can put on a suit or go golfing or whatever and their tattoos are not visible. They can blend back into mainstream society. Not the Vori. The Vori actually having visible tattoos was in many ways a very deliberate choice. It was about saying, I am making a lifelong commitment to this particular subculture. And I'm doing so in rejection of everyone else's. I, it's not just that I don't mind if everyone else knows that I'm a member of the Vorovskoy Mir. I want them to know that. And remember, this is an age before lasers and so forth. You couldn't get rid of tattoos easily. It was a lifetime commitment. So you would have things, I mean, later on there will be barbed wire across the forehead sometimes. Or otherwise, you know, tattoos, not just on the hands, but on the face, on the forearms and so forth. It says, I am a vor, fear me. Because a central element to the code of the Vorovskoy Mir was a rejection of mainstream society and everything it stood for. These were people who felt they had been left behind, ignored and abused by the rest of the state and society the government, the church, whatever. And they turn their back on them. Again, it's interesting that within the um, Vor slang, Ludi, the Russian word for people, would only ever be used for fellow criminals. The implication, those people who are not Vori, they're not even people. You can, you can understand a lot from, from, from looking at this, the semiology of, of, of slang. Now, this, this was a very scattered and diffuse criminal community. What really um, gave it true coherence uh, was basically the person who was the, the ultimate godfather of Russian organized crime, Soviet organized crime, Joseph Stalin, and the Gulag system, which was absolutely pivotal in turning this into something much, much more powerful and coherent. Um, with the whirlwind of terror that Stalin ushered in, millions of Soviet citizens being sent into the gulag labor camps, most of whom were just poor, innocent victims. They'd happened to be you know, from the wrong socioeconomic class, at the wrong place. They had two cows instead of one, whatever. Um, laughed at the wrong joke, didn't laugh at the right joke. Whatever reason is, they were swept in. But of course, there were also many criminals, many vori, who were also swept up. Now, the gulag system, uh, we tend to think of it as something really quite static that you, you know, you're arrested, you're dragged away, you're sent to a gulag, you labor there, chopping trees, digging coal, whatever, until you're either released or you die. In fact, it's not, it wasn't. Solzhenitsyn talked about the gulag archipelago, implying that these camps were totally sort of isolated within a sea. Well, it's not, there was actually constant flow between the camps. It was a gulag network more than anything else, so-called ETAP system of prisoner transports. Um, this camp needs more workers because they've identified some more coal to be mined. This camp needs more workers because of a tuberculosis epidemic. This camp has too many workers because they finished digging the canal, whatever. So there was constant flow of people between the gulags. And what that meant was actually the criminals got to constantly meet and mingle with other criminals from all around the Soviet Union and realize what they, the, what they shared, the commonality of views. This is when you really have a genuinely nationwide criminal subculture. And it also meant that they had informal channels whereby information could be constantly shared. Someone comes into your camp claiming to be a really big shot gangster. You don't know because you know, no one else comes from where it is, Kaluga or whatever. But the point is, there will be people constantly moving about and someone will get the message out. Do you know this guy? Is he really a big shot? And the word will eventually come back, no, he's an imposter, or yeah, yeah, he's serious, he's a sort of serious guy. Um, so they, you know, the, the, the criminals could also begin to establish their own information networks. Most crucially of all, the Gulag system was originally, in my opinion, essentially a political um, initiative. It was to break any real or conceivable resistance to the Stalinist state and to terrify everyone else. But increasingly, it also acquired an economic dimension. 
It was slave labor for the mass modernization of the Soviet state. Now, if you're going to be running slave labor, you want to be doing it as cheaply and as effectively as possible. So many of the gulag camps are in the high north, scattered across Siberia and so forth, places where no one would actually want to go if they had a choice. So are you going to recruit lots and lots of prison guards and have to pay them the kind of bonuses that they'll, you'll need to get them to go to these miserable places? The, the sort of terrifying and murderous ingenuity of the Stalinist state is that no, they, they turned to basically trying to co-opt professional criminals to be their inner control mechanism. If anyone, I, I, I spent um, a period of about, I don't know, five months maybe, where pretty much everything I read was gulag memoirs. As you can imagine, it was a particularly sunny period of my life. It was a Swedish winter of my life. Um, but nonetheless, the thing that comes up time and time again is actually that precisely the extent to which you may fear and hate the prison guards, the ones in uniform, but in many ways vastly worse were the criminals who are actually being used to actually control you the f as, as the foreman of the system. They were offered um, sometimes a promise of early release that never very rarely really materialized, but, but generally just better conditions and just simply the chance with impunity to exploit, oppress, and throw your weight around other human beings. Because let's face it, you know, if you want to find people who are going to be your agents inside the, the zone, inside the prison system, do you want to go for bespectacled 50-year-old professors of philology from Leningrad State University? or a thuggish, tattooed 27-year-old who's there on multiple um, life sentences because of his murder convictions. Uh, I think you go for the latter. Now, to become an agent of the state, you have to break one of the fundamental elements of the code of the Vroskoi Mir. Because one of the central precepts is you never, ever cooperate with the authorities in any way. But nonetheless, there were those who attempted whether it's by the, the physical conditions of improvement or whether it's just simply by the opportunities of precisely being a petty tyrant in, in, in their gulags. And in the process, basically, the world of the Vorovskoy Mir split. A small minority who were collaborators, um, who became known as suki, bitches, amongst other terms, um, and the majority, the blatnia, who were still the, kind of the traditionalists. And on the whole, until after World War II, these two groups essentially largely remained in, an, in a very tense Cold War. The collaborators knew that they were too few in number to essentially force the traditionalists to do anything. The traditionalists knew that if they tried to wipe out the collaborators, the state would, 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 would crack down. However, after the Great Patriotic War, after World War II, this Cold War could no longer survive. Um, because many prisoners either volunteered to go and fight or were forced to, swept up and sent into penal battalions at the front. In addition, the, the camp population was swollen by Soviet prisoners of war. The Stalinist state basically believed that Soviet soldiers should not, uh, should not um, surrender. And therefore you, ha you had the grotesque spectacle of Soviet prisoners of war being released from Nazi concentration camps, under armed guard swept into Soviet concentration camps. But nonetheless, as far as the Vorovskoy Mir, the traditionalists were concerned, the people who'd actively chosen to collaborate with the authorities, people who had chosen, I mean, so criminals who'd chosen to fight, and the soldiers who are now in the camps, they had all one way or the other worked for the state, and therefore they were all to be considered enemies. But there was now vastly more of them. The old days where there was a great, great disproportion were no more, there was not now much more parity, but the point is there was that, that old Cold War could no longer survive. And the result was an explosion of violence, the Suceya Voina, the bitches war that swept the camp system from the late 40s in, in, into the early 1950s. Um, it was a, a, a kind of a, a spasm of violence. It was a war that was as much as anything else fought by individual killings and lynchings as anything else. It essentially destabilized the whole gulag system, made it not only unmanageable, but also uneconomic, which is one of the key reasons why Stalin's successors opened it out. It wasn't that they were that much nicer people, but that they just realized the gulag system no longer worked in the way it had intended. 
It also led to a series of actual camp risings, um, which is a great concern to, to the state. But the point is, although the authorities hadn't wanted this war to happen, once it had happened, well, obviously they wanted the collaborators to win. So there are all kinds of ways in which they could tip the balance, particularly, for example, giving collaborators jobs such as cooks uh, or barbers, which meant that they had access to knives, uh, or moving the collaborators en masse to a particular camp, allowing them then to sort of wipe out the traditionalists there or force them to join their numbers, and then moving them en masse to the next camp. So basically, by the time that the, the Gulag systems are being opened up after Stalin's death, the collaborators have won within the camps. And what they've done is they basically they have edited, they have rewritten the code of the Vorovskoy Mir. So it's still as brutal, as macho, um, as violently exploitative and predatory as ever. But still saying that you, know, you, you, you keep your honor, you keep your word within the, the thieves' world, everyone else is fair game. But they've added in the proviso, but it's now okay to co collaborate with the authorities so long as it's in your interest. Not out of patriotism or anything like that, but because you're going to gain from it. The criminals are amongst the first people to be let out from the gulags. And again, over the next, really how you count it, five to ten years, there is another kind of invisible civil war that takes place within the wider Soviet underworld as the, the new Vori essentially take over. Now, in some ways, it might not have made a difference if you had a new generation of gangster willing to cut deals with the state. If the state had not, at the same time, been going through a process of progressive corruption. Um, the 60s and the 70s and the era in which the Communist Party becomes increasingly just a, a kind of corrupt, exploitative class. And so, you have this, this perfect connection of gangsters more willing to, to cooperate with the authorities, authorities or figures within the authorities more and more willing to cooperate with anyone to their interests. And you essentially have a sort of unholy trinity of, of, of criminality that emerges within the Soviet Union. You have corrupt party bosses who have power, but it's often very difficult for them to actually turn that into the things that will generally make their life better. Um, fine, so, so you can order anyone arrested or anyone freed from prison. Fine, so you can order you know, 2,000 pairs of shoes that were made in this factory to just suddenly be, be <coughs> drop, dropped off the books. But how do you monetize that? You know, y you can't wear 2,000 pairs of shoes yourself. Um, the second element were the black market entrepreneurs who increasingly you know, became actually sort of underworld millionaires. You know, we, we think of black marketeers and we think of sort of street corner spivs and, and currency dealers. Well, you know, these were people who in some cases literally ran factories inside existing factories or, or entirely separately. They, they operated the, un the underworld, the underground economy on an industrial scale. And indeed, that was necessary for ordinary Soviet citizens. As, as the planned economy increasingly ground into obsolescence. They had money. They often had the capacity to turn goods, you know, sort of in, 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 you know, to acquire goods, rather, um, that others would want. For example, smuggled Western com consumer goods, which is precisely what the party bosses wanted. What they didn't have was, was security. The gangsters emerged in some ways as the weakest of this trinity but also as, as the connective tissue between the two. They acted as the mediators. So the corrupt party boss could basically make sure that the underground entrepreneurs could operate with impunity. In return, they would get the imported whiskey or hi-fi or whatever that people, you know, the, the, the party bosses would want. The gangsters would just make sure that the deals worked out smoothly. They also started by kind of oppressing the underground entrepreneurs, and after a certain point made a deal whereby they were more or less just taxing them. They would make sure everything was fine and they were safe so long as a certain proportion of their income went to the gangsters. But the point is, they were having to operate beneath the surface. They could not be visible, because to do so would basically embarrass the, the um, party bosses and be an inconvenience for the, for the underworld entrepreneurs. This is why no one really saw them. They were operating within the system. Gorbachev comes along, and I feel so sorry for Gorbachev. I mean, you know, I, it would be, in hindsight, it would be difficult to come up with a reform program 
which was not more effectively designed to empower organized crime than what Gorbachev did. It wasn't his intent. Um, first of all, his anti-alcohol campaign that was just as effective and well thought through as American prohibition. I mean, you know, but who in their right minds thinks trying to separate Russians from alcohol is a meaningful and useful strategy to adopt? Instead, what he did was he took um, a huge industry and he handed it to the gangsters. And this is important because it's not just that suddenly the gangsters became that much more rich than ever before. But this was, for most cases, this was the first time Soviet citizens had actually encountered organized crime. Because it wasn't like the Italian mafia in New York or whatever. The, you know, the mafia were not carrying out predatory extortion and such like. They, said they, they were out of sight. The first time Soviet citizens encountered them was as the person who can get you the booze you want for your New Year celebration, for your daughter's wedding, or this being Russia, just for, for Wednesday evening, or whatever. They were service providers, welcome service providers. The state was denying you something, these guys could get you it. And I remember talking to one, one sort of middle-ranking criminal um, who at the time was a, was a shistyorka, a sort of gopher, a sort of lowest level runner, really, um, within a gang, who was amazed because they go into these big apartment blocks in the outskirts of Moscow, um, basically selling alcohol. And they were, they were welcomed. Guys, come on in, guys, what have you got for us? And what, not so, what, what was more is they fa suddenly found that they were being sort of used for other services, not just, yes, we'll buy you the, the, the moonshine or the stolen alcohol or whatever, but can you get us cigarettes as well? Do you know anyone who could, you know, who could make sure that, that my kid gets to see a doctor? All these sorts of things. At a time when for ordinary Soviet citizens, Getting anything really depended on blood, on connections, on corruption. These people were the ultimate repositories of blood. So again, they were welcomed. And they suddenly found, almost without their intention, a whole variety of new roles, new industries being placed upon them. Second crucial reform of the Gorbachev era was the cooperative movement creating a whole series of small-scale private enterprise to try and supplement the planned economy. Now, what had actually happened was create a whole series of new businesses, restaurants, car repair shops, hairdressers, whatever, that organized crime could both predate, you know, extort from, but also use to launder its proceeds. Suddenly, this is how you explained how all of a sudden you had a suitcase or a bath full of rubles. It's, oh, no, no, I, I own that restaurant. It's really successful. Trust me. Um, so it gave organized crime an increasing stake within regular economic activity. And crucially, these two elements together conspired to create a very different kind of vor, a very different kind of thief. The new model vor was not the tattooed thug. The new model was basically a gangster businessman who understood economics, at least this kind of street-level economics, and who was interested in getting involved in that, who knew one, you know, one column of, of, of a double-entry bookkeeping schedule as, as anyone else. And so we're beginning to see the shift, the evolution of organized crime, from one which depends on um, violence or the threat of violence and the capacity to operate covertly, into one that increasingly depends on the capacity to operate a seemingly behind a sort of nice, nice facade within the legitimate sector and in a whole variety of different economic sectors. Then the third crucial element of, of, of the Gorbachev era was democratization, the attempt at sort of fundamental reform of the system which actually destroyed it. You know, it, it just proved beyond reform. But what that meant was basically that even before the Soviet Union was broken apart, you actually had the whole system collapsing. You had the fact of party bosses no longer having the same, anything like the same degree of power and facing the possibility that they might actually have to win elections, real elections, well, kind of real elections. And all of a sudden, these people who once upon a time had been the gods of their neighborhoods and districts and oblasts and republics suddenly had much, much less power at their disposal and also had use for someone who could get the vote out someone who could make sure that lots of people vote the right way. 
someone who could ensure that a bunch of heavies would go and break up the electoral meetings of his rivals. From being the people who could dictate terms to the gangsters, for a while they were the people who were basically appealing for the assistance of the gangsters. So really, with the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and through the 1990s, for a brief while, that pyramid is inverted. The gangsters are now seemingly the most powerful element. They're not, but f that's how it's seemed for a while. The 1990s, this, this kind of era of anarchic redefinition of quite what country this was going to be, this new country, Russia, what, what was it? It was a capitalist democracy, but what, what does capitalism mean? What does democracy mean in practice? Everything is being negotiated from scratch, and clearly the loudest voices be belong to those people who have power, connections, money. Now that means obviously you know, corrupt figures within the old party elite, security apparatus, new generation of oligarchs, and the gangsters. They're able to basically play a part in the, in the, in the, in the definition of this new country. Everything is up for grabs. No one knows what the new rules are. One of the reasons why the 1990s was such a horribly violent period for Russia is because everyone's fighting over these new resources that are suddenly available as everything's being privatized and so forth. But also, gangs are competing to establish, well, where, where are the turf lines? Which is my territory and which is yours? What is the level of precedence? You know, who, what is the pecking order? <coughs> who are the more pow powerful groups and who aren't? Because there's no other way of, of, of resolving these issues, they're resolved through violence. Then Putin comes along, and everything changes, or does it? In so many ways, Putin was incredibly lucky in his first two terms as president. He's lucky in economic terms, all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's money to spare. He's lucky in geopolitical terms, as the West becomes distracted by, by sort of global war on terror and such like. He's also lucky, though, in terms of the underworld. Because even before he came to power, the turf wars had been coming to an end. They had been resolved. Resources had been allocated. Turf lines had been drawn. Pecking orders established. Um, so he could come along with his very tough law and order rhetoric that many people believed. I, I mean, I remember talking to one Vor who literally slept with a packed suitcase under his bed so that if, if one of his informants within the police told him that they were coming to arrest him, he could just grab that and head for the airport. He never had to use that suitcase. Putin talked tough on law and order, but it was clear that he did not regard it as a priority. And in hindsight, we shouldn't be surprised. Think back to mid-1990s when Putin is deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. His key role is liaison. Well, liaison with whom? With corporations, with public bodies, but also with the underworld. You know, it's clear that he, you know, he's his key figure in the relationship between the St. Petersburg Mayor's Office and the Tambovskaya Organized Crime Grouping, the most powerful organized crime grouping in St. Petersburg. And he's able to basically build a working relationship. And I think that's really important. We hear talk today about Russia being a mafia state. It's a term I really don't like, because I think it's very problematic. It implies that either the mafia runs the government, which it doesn't, or that the government runs the mafia, which it doesn't. What Putin was all about was establishing a relationship which reflected the fact that the government is ultimately most powerful, but that nonetheless it could reach deals which were, were mutually beneficial with the gangsters. And this is in effect what he offered when he came to power. Remember once talking to a captain in Moore, which is the Moscow Police Criminal Investigations Department, who said that basically in, in the year 2000, one of the key things he was doing was having sit-down meetings with key gangsters in Moscow to explain to them the new rules. And put very simply, it was this. Organized crime is going to carry on committing its crimes. The police are going to carry on trying to catch them. Fair enough. But if they do anything which looks like a challenge to the state, anything which looks like an embarrassment for the state, then the state would treat them as its enemies. And being an enemy of the state is a much more dangerous thing than just being a criminal. This was a deal that, in effect, organized crime was largely willing to accept. They were happy to basically consolidate what they had. Because after all, the implicit within that was that Putin would not unleash the full resources of the state against them. So they could enjoy the good life, they could carry on their crimes, but they had to now accept that basically the state was the biggest gang in town. 
so you have an end to, for example, the kind of indiscriminate violence on, on the streets, the car bombings, the drive-by shootings, which again implied that the Kremlin was not in control of its own cities. You have increasingly um, a, a submerging of many of the activities of organized crime. So this is what Putin did. He did not beat the mafia. He house-trained it, but he kept it in the house. Now to kind of look at the sort of current situation and bring, it, bring, bring those three sort of themes back to end the, the, this, this part. Essentially, what, what Putin tried to do was once again re-establish control, the state's control over organized crime, not to wipe it out. He wasn't willing to basically put the kind of massive effort that would be involved in a serious campaign against organized crime because he doesn't seem to have thought it was that much of an issue. It wasn't a priority for him, particularly because the overlap between the, the underworld or crime politics and business, especially at a local level, is so intimate that, in effect, to defeat organized crime, Putin would have been fighting a war with his own elite. Wasn't interested in that. So instead, it's about kind of co-opting them. Originally, it was about, as it were, establishing negative rules. This you cannot do, or we will crack down on you. And from time to time, a high-profile gangster is picked who, you know, who's become a bit too embarrassing. Barsukov, who was the head of Tambovskaya in 2007, um, later on the, the, the mayor of Makhachkala, so called Said the Undying. And they launched these massive operations, sending hundreds of police commandos to grab this person and fly them to Moscow and so forth. Not because they need to send so many guys, but just to establish that point. Doesn't matter how big you are, doesn't matter how many thugs you've got, we've got more thugs. We can touch anyone. Um, since 2014, one of the worrying trends I've, I, I feel is increasingly not just, as it were, a negative, don't do this, but a positive, we would like you to do this. Attempt to basically utilize, hesitate to use the word weaponize from one of these f f vogue terms, um, but use organized crime as an instrument, sometimes domestically, but primarily abroad. Um, again, the sort of first real sign was the mobilization of, of sort of patriotic hackers, so-called. Um, in terms of mass computer attacks, Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine in particular. We've seen some cases in, in Europe um, where organized crime has been used for a variety of purposes, ranging from killing Chechens in Turkey to carrying out low-level intelligence operations um, to, perhaps most importantly, being a source of so-called Chornaya black account monies, money that has no um, detectable connection to the Kremlin. So, for example, gangs that, that, that smuggle across the Russian border being told, well, we'll go easy on you, but a certain proportion of your income needs, you know, from your operations, wherever, needs to be sent to this bank account or maybe even sent to this person. Details are still unclear. Um, as a way of funding their political operations um, in, in, in the West and, as I said, particularly Europe. So the state is, is as I would suggest, increasingly active in trying to mobilize organized crime as an instrument. But of course, thieves will corrupt. Take a look at what happened in Crimea and Donbass. When the, when the Russians took Crimea, the, the, sort of the little green men, or the polite people in the Russian term, um, you know, some of them were these exceedingly efficient um, and, and thoroughly professional, you know, clearly Russian special forces without their insignia. But then we also had the ones in mismatched camouflage, but with the shiny new guns, who actually were just simply sort of hanging around in squares in Crimea or looting buildings as often as not. Well, they were actually, it turned out, members of two primary local organized crime gangs, the two main gangs that were dominant in Crimea, um, who had been rivals, but were willing to basically ignore that in return for the opportunity to become part of the, the, the new order. They, they provided the Russians with, with more kind of manpower on the streets, but above all, a degree of deniability. These were the so-called volunteer, uh, volunteer self-defense forces uh, of, of Crimea. But of course, now what you have is a Crimean government that is thoroughly criminalized. Um, the premier of Crimea, Aksyonov, according to frankly highly credible Ukrainian sources, was in, in the 2000s, uh, a gangster who went by the, the Klitschka, the nickname of Goblin. Um, he then went into business, but never lost his, his old friends. Um, and that's clearly contributing to the massive um, theft 
of the resources being spent on trying to uplift Crimea. Likewise in the Donbass, you have this, this, this proxy war being fought by a whole motley array of everything from Russian regulars through mercenaries, nationalist adventurers, to groups that are clearly just the you know, organized crime groups, given a chance to basically turn their muscle into military power. And again, it's a quick way if you need to hurriedly have a sort of generate armies out of nowhere. But first of all, they tend to be very bad soldiers. But secondly, again, they are exploiting this war. Classic tactic is you, you start some little skirmish with the Ukrainian forces on the other side of the line of contact. Shoot off 10,000 rounds. Claim you shot off 20,000 rounds. Then, a couple of days later, 20,000 rounds comes from the depots outside Rostov-on-Don. And you've got 10,000 rounds to sell on the black market. Where do they sell them? Some, some goes into Ukraine, some goes in all other directions. A lot goes back into Russia. Rostov-on-Don, as I said, this is the city that in many ways is the command post for Russian operations in, in the Donbass, certainly the kind of these political deniable operations, has gone from being one of the uh, calmest and most safe cities in all of the Russian Federation to so far being the seventh most dangerous and still rising. So much so that the Russian police there themselves are actually warning about what's happening. You know, the state thinks it exploits the criminals. It does so at its own peril. The criminals are very good at turning that round and finding ways of exploiting the state. And the final point then, about the, the honest thieves. Um, I, I, I probably watch far too much Russian crime TV and film than is possibly, possibly good for me. But one of the interesting things that, are, that I think has emerged really since, since, since 91 is the normalization of the gangster in, in Russian popular culture. They've gone from being kind of sexy, alarming figures to just being normal figures. I mean, again, I sort of go into detail about one particular series, Fizruk. I won't talk about it now unless people want to ask a question about it. Um, but increasingly, what one finds is being a gangster it's like saying someone's an orthodontist or whatever, and probably less serious than saying someone's a tax collector. It's just another descriptor. There isn't the same kind of opprobrium, we feel. At the same time, there is a growing anger against corruption and embezzlement, a growing awareness of the extent to which the dishonest thieves are robbing them blind. And for me, I think that's one of the sort of fascinating tensions. It's not that they think the gangsters are good guys. They don't. They know they're not. But they just don't think they are as bad as the gangsters in the Duma, in the Kremlin, and most importantly of all, in the local administrations. On that kind of particular high point, um, because I, I don't want to go sort of too long, I will end with one final point. I am unfashionably optimistic about Russia, though. Why? Because the Russians themselves, I think, are getting fed up. It's going to be a generational process, but it doesn't matter if I'm talking to a young generation of cops or ordinary Russians or whatever. I do feel that there is a growing awareness of the need for some kind of substantive change that will address both the issue of the gangsters, the honest thieves, and the corrupt officials, the dishonest thieves. And in the 30 years that I've been looking at that, there has been, in my opinion, a positive trend. As I said, it, it's going to be generational. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen maybe even next decade, but it's, it will come. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> and for the audience, you can keep your questions until a little bit later. Uh, we will continue with Eric, please. Thank you, Mark. Indeed, um, and I'm happy that you um, found the time to, to, to finish on a, on a hopeful note. I uh, can only congratulate you on, on a, a, an important achievement and um, uh, an important book. And uh, thank you also for your great presentation. Um, and I can also recommend those of you who have not yet read the book to do so. Um, although. Uh, I should mention that it, sh it should perhaps come with a, a, a warning of the graphic content uh, uh, on the cover page, and I don't mean graphic in the sense of lots of pictures, but there is a lot of violence and brutality in this, uh, in this book and in this work. 
which is perhaps not surprising, but uh, keep away from children under the age of 15. And maybe you should also avoid reading it uh, at home alone uh, late in the evening. Um, but uh, I, I myself, my background is in economics, and I, I started watching Russia back in 2002, 2003. And as a, as a Russia observer, I have always felt that Organized crime is, is part of Russia. It's uh, an important uh, aspect of Russian life, Russian politics, business, but it's something that is very hard to grasp. So uh, having read your book, I think it, it is a, it's a great contribution in the sense that it's not just a, a piece of the puzzle for us Russia watchers. It's, it's, uh, you are essentially providing a, a whole new perspective. You are sort of showing us the, the, not only a piece of the puzzle, but, but a pattern uh, that emerges when we try to um, um, collect the pieces of that puzzle. I remember when I came to Russia, probably the first, this was probably in 2003, and I was um, right out of, uh, of, of school and I had learned Russian, and I, I remember a, a conversation I had with a young person my age, and she, we were talking about, um, what is status in Russia? And I remember she said that status in Russia is to have money, but no one should really know where it comes from. Uh, and um, I think that really ties neatly into, into the kind of general theme of your book that, as you said in the beginning of your presentation, Russia is in some sense a criminalized country. And not only in the sense that, that, that crime is organized and, and uh, highly developed, but that it's a cultural norm. The gangster has become normal. Um, and in the book, you, you, you highlight three themes. Um, and I, sh I should really say that this is not only a, it's, it's a book about crime in Russia, but it's also a, a historical work. Um, and that also adds a lot of nuance. Uh, and you really do explain very thoroughly that this is, this is a very complex phenomenon. Uh, and um, it's wrong to say that the state controls organized crime or that organized crime controls the state. It's much more complicated than that. Um, so the three themes that you mention um, in the introduction to the book is that Russian gangsters are in some sense unique to Russia because of the historical context which you explained um, in your presentation. It's also a mirror to Russian society and it is something that has shaped uh, modern Russia uh, to a large degree. And then you mention all these periods in Soviet history, starting with the Gulag system, how the cultural culture of the Varavskoy Mir um, develops inside the camps. Uh, that ends more or less with the end of the Stalinist period. And then you go into the more corrupt years of the Brezhnev era, where organized crime finds um, lots of opportunities to cooperate with with uh, the black market, and then in the end, it, it culminates with um, uh, the Perestroika years. And just to give a sense of the scale of this phenomenon, I think somewhere in the book you you, you mentioned that under Perestroika, small business was allowed to develop, uh, so-called cooperatives. Uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, as I remember, that up to it was estimated that up to one um, uh, three quarters of all cooperatives in Russia in the late Soviet period were somehow controlled by or influenced by organized crime. So 75% of, of, of the market. This is a, a phenomenon that is industrial in scale. Um, but as I mentioned, my background is in economics and I tend to think of, uh, uh, always try to think in terms of incentives and um, institutional development, and I think that's something that also comes through very nicely in the book. But um, I'm also thinking some aspects of the phenomenon that you document is it's probably similar wherever you look in the world. A subculture emerges, possibly criminal, possibly violent. But what struck me uh, when I read your book is that here you have a subculture that's emerging in a society where violence is already, to cert uh, a certain extent, a norm. So violence is already very important in, in Soviet and Russian society. And obviously, 
if you have violent capital in a society like that, you're going to find <laughs> a return on that capital eventually. So on the one hand, you say that Russian gangsters are unique due to the historical context, but I was thinking, wasn't it in some sense inevitable that this kind of phenomenon emerged? Or was it, was it because of the gulag system and the corruption? Or would, we have, would it have emerged anyway? Okay, um, thanks for that. Actually, if, if, if I may, I'm just pick up on a couple of points you make before answering that, that specific question. Um, this business of status is, is money that no one knows where it comes from. I think it's an interesting point, but again, I think what, what's really, again, this, this, this goes back to, to the business of, of trying to find little shreds for optimism, is you, know, you do have a new generation of Russian new rich, and I'm not talking about the oligarchs, with their, you know, but I'm talking about you know, people who are at best minigarchs. Um, but people who have money have pretty much as much money as they need to, to, to live by, but what they now want is respectability, the capacity to move abroad or you know, travel abroad and be able to invest and spend that money abroad, which is now becoming increasingly sort of problematic. But also, crucially, we're now coming to a point of a generational inflection. People actually beginning to think about their kids. Now, if you're going to actually be able to hand money to your kids, you need a certain degree of rule of law. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's all about you know, just constantly sort of you know, fighting for it. Th the classic model is when you're robbing banks, you don't want there to be a police force. If by the time you actually own banks, you want the state to be paying for a police force to protect your banks. You don't want to have to be hiring private security guards yourself. Well, likewise, there is a generation that actually is now in many ways looking to legitimate itself. It's done its thieving. It now wants to legitimate that. And, and, and this is absolutely what, what happens in every culture. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the robber barons of the of, you know, United States or, frankly, the British House of Lords. You know, now it's meant to be this kind of pillar of respectability. Once upon a time, it just happened to be the, sort of the robber barons with the longest swords. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what happens. Um, and the interesting thing is actually to, to watch how, how they, in a way, are now looking for ways in which they can actually get away from that money that no one can prove, because you might actually want to prove where that money comes from. So, you know, there, there is a new generation changing. And the other point I make, that, that statistic about three quarters of, of, of the market being owned by, you know, controlled by organized crime. Um, I mean, just to undermine myself, I should say, particularly when it comes to organized crime, we should all be deeply, deeply worried about any nice statistic. Because bottom line is, even today, we don't really know the size of the Russian economy. So how we can sort of assess otherwise. And for me, the best example was, for so long, there was this figure of 40% of the Russian economy is controlled by organized crime. And I was thinking, that seems very neat. Um, but then you found it being picked up. Even Russian police sources were using it. But I, I was thinking, but it doesn't seem to change over time. What's more, sometimes it says 40% of Russian businesses. Sometimes it's 40% of the Russian GDP. Sometimes it's 40% of the Russian GNP. And I'm thinking, well, look, either the Russians have been, the, the gangsters have been incredibly clever in how they buy things to make sure they constantly balance this out so that 40% of businesses is also the same as 40% of GDP. Or else, maybe, just maybe, this is a questionable statistic. So I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to just try and push back, trying to find the first reference. And it turned out the very first reference was in, I think it was 1992, uh, in, a, in a panel in the United States when someone was asked a question, how much of the economy is controlled by organized crime? And they said, quite rightly, we don't know. Fatally, though, went on to say, for all I know, it could be 40%. Just as a sort of, ha, huh, what are you? Well, that becomes assessed, that became reported as expert says 40% of Russian economy could be controlled by Russian organized crime, which then, as is the usual way, became 40% is controlled by organized crime. So I went to the Russian police and I said, why are you using this statistic? And this, and this, is, this is the time when the Russian police were still in a fairly bad way. In the late 90s, they didn't have many resources. So they were saying, well, look, you know, we haven't, we haven't got the, the time and the resources to be able to dig into this, but Western specialists have assessed this. And it was because no one had an accurate figure, and a vacuum will always be filled. So just generally, you know, doubt my statistics, 
No, no, not, not mine. But everyone else's, you should always doubt. Um, anyway, to, to go, go on to this business of, you know, violence of the norm and therefore was this inevitable. I mean, I really do think that, I mean, although one, one can look at the, um, the Bolshevik Revolution, which obviously saw a lot of criminals being used to, also kind of being brought in to, to, to the, the Bolshevik party, but really, I mean, I do think the Gulag um, did have a, a, a critical role. Firstly, obviously, in terms of how it, it homogenized the underworld, and particularly emerged, led to the emergence of the, the Voriva Zakonya, the thieves within the code, as a kind of authority figures, high priests of, of the criminal subculture. Secondly, in terms of you know, crucially leading to this sort of change in the code to allow them to c collaborate. Thirdly, in terms of, this is a time when actually you know, the, the, the Communist Party itself was on the whole not exactly full of deep thinkers, accustoming them to think of criminals as people you, could, you can use and do deals with. Um, and then finally, just in terms of, this was a, a true brutal, you know, brutalization of all of Soviet society. Everyone, either, you know, even if you didn't go through the camps yourself, and a lot of people did, you knew someone, your family had someone or whatever, and, and, and the kind of the, the violence and so forth was therefore a, a, a sort of truly um, nationwide phenomenon. So I, I mean, I really do think that you know, there would have been a problem with organized crime, but the, the scale, the extent, and the structure, and the particular characteristics, is very much, I would say, a product of the Gulag system. Uh, thank you for that. That, that's, um, that is an interesting point, and it, it, it shows you the power of um, really digging deeply uh, into history sometimes to understand where we stand today. Um, th there is certainly an evolution that ha we have gone from the Gulag system, where, where the thieves were outside of society, to, to um, a situation today where gangsters have almost become normal. You. You also mentioned um, that Putin was lucky. You write in the book that he also deserves some credit. Um, again, uh, going back to my own experience, I remember f the first time I started mentioning to friends here in Sweden that uh, you know I, I'm moving to Russia. I'm going to spend some time in Russia uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, some of them were genuinely shocked, and I think someone even asked me if I if I would be allowed to go outside. Uh, that was the image people had of Russia, and I, I came there and I enjoyed my time in Moscow very much, and I, I had a great time. Um, I don't, I can't remember ever really feeling threatened. So um, something did change, I suppose, when when Putin came to power. He was not only lucky, was he? I mean, in many ways, look, we 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 always focus on on Putin. Um, Putin was both a symptom and a cause of many things. The very fact that it was Putin who was chosen to be Yeltsin's successor reflected, I think, a, a, a groundswell of opinion within key figures within the elite, particularly within the security apparatus, but not just solely there, about the fact that it, this could not be allowed to last. That the Russia's slide into almost, I mean, it, it wasn't a failed state, but in some ways it was failing. This could not be allowed to continue. Um, and therefore, in a way, Putin was the guy they chose, but it was part of a wider process. But yes, I, I think when the historians in 100 years' time write their assessments of Putin, I mean, I think there will be a sense that he actually did do some things that needed to be done, often in a particularly unpleasant, corrupt, or bloody way, but nonetheless, actually reconstituting the Russian state um, was was absolutely necessary, and and as a part of that, precisely, it, it it dragged Russia back from the horrendous anarchy of the 1990s. And and I think it's fair to say that this is one of the reasons why he remains fairly popular in Russia. It is, though I'm bound to say, there's only so long you can play the "I am not Boris Yeltsin" and "This is not the 1990s" card. Um, you know, I think, how many people really remember the 1990s that, that, that well? Um, but yes, I mean, it's, 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 it's part of his kind of still vestigial appeal, and it feeds into his sense that basically, I think he's also his personal view of him as the saviour of Russia, the man who is there to make Russia great again. Uh, before we open up for further questions, I, I, um, I have one more question, if you would like to share with us a little bit. Um, 
something about your actual field research, because this is um, uh, very fascinating. Um, in the book you reference uh, a lot of literature, but also a lot of interviews with actual criminals. You have sat down at cafes with Russian hitmen. Uh, in some places you even reference uh, operational material from, from Russian uh, crime-fighting agencies, mm -hmm. including material from ongoing operations. So I, I understand this is a very particular field of research. So if you, if, is there anything you could say about how, how, how do you actually go about studying crime as a phenomenon in Russia in particular? I mean, the answer is it's easy. You spend 30 years doing it. Um, no, joking apart, I mean, that, that, that is, that is what one, one, one of the points. It's one of the reasons why, why in some ways, although I kind, of, I, I kind of started this research really in 1991, um, but it's always been a kind of a side project because it's not something that one could just simply sit down and think, OK, I'm going to spend six months talking to gangsters and then I'll be able to write a book. Um, because, uh, you know, on the whole, you had, well, I had to be sort of, careful and slow in cultivating the contacts. It was, I mean, the reason I got into this was precisely because while I was doing my doctorate on the impact of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, I was dealing with veterans and some of them were drifting into this world and that's what gave me sort of, you know, some low-level contacts that then you, you mediate. Um, and likewise, there have, been, there have been good times in Russian-Western relations. Um, it has to be said, since 2014, it's become a lot, lot harder to do research in Russia of that kind, and certainly to make new contacts. But there have been times when it was a lot easier. But the main thing is exactly just slowly cultivating a network. And this is one of the great things about being an academic. You can present yourself as being totally pointless. I have no official standing whatsoever. I have no kind of protocols that limit who I get to talk to. Um, I can just present myself as just a woolly, head-in-the-clouds academic. I mean, I, n I never ask people about operational details. I've never asked them, so when's the next drug deal going down or anything like that that sort of clearly would be useful to the authorities. But also, I think it reflects an interesting kind of difference. I, I, I've talked to, to criminals in the West as well, usually in prison. Um, and the interesting thing is you always have to start by saying, look, you know, I'm not your priest, I'm not your lawyer. Nothing you tell me is privileged information. Anything you tell me, I can be required to repeat in, in court if arraigned. So usually that'll very much limit what they actually say. Or if they talk to you, it'll always be in the frame of, oh, I've got a friend, a friend who did this. Or literally it will be, they'll talk about other people's activities. In Russia, particularly if people are of a certain st level of stature, they have their krisha, their roof, their protection. Um, the issue there is usually not, not, you know, everyone, there is a site called Prime Crime, which, it's amazing, it basically is a fanboy's site on Russian gangsters, in which not only does it have photos and lists of their criminal careers, it has comment sections where people will say, oh, I saw so-and-so at such and such a restaurant the other day, or this guy is much, much tougher than that guy. You know, it's almost like how people respond to sportsmen, or sports people, rather, um, you know, so th there's vast amounts of information. People are protected because of their position in the system and who are, who are their protectors, who, are they, who do they pay off, who do they use services for. If their kresha breaks, then the last thing they need to worry about is what some Western academic might know about them. So in some ways, if the problem with, with talking to gangsters in the West is getting them to talk, in Russia it's often getting them to shut up. Um, because, look, people like talking about themselves. This is exactly what I'm doing now. Um, and if they don't have the fear, talking to me becomes a symbol of prestige. Particularly in the 1990s, it was a status of Angliski professor. I, mean, I wish I had been a professor at that point. Um, you know, sort of, it was almost like that shows that they are serious, serious gangsters, that, that, that I want to talk to them, when of course I'll, I'll, t I'll talk to anyone. Um, but, but the problem is that they will tell stories that turn out to be massive exaggerations outright folklore or whatever, and therefore you always had to kind of triangulate. You had to have other people you go and check with say, well, this detail, did that, that really work? But no, the irony is, once you break, I mean, again, you can't just go into a bar and say, hi, anyone here from the Mafia? Um, you know, you, you, you had to be vouched for. And at times, you know, I had to think about my own personal security and so forth. I mean, it's like, there's the anecdote in, in the book about when I did sort of meet a Chechen hitman. Um, I was very keen to do so, but 
thinking Chechen hitman. So I met him at a cafe at uh, Sheremetyevo Airport. So he, you know, we'd all have had to go through metal detectors, and there's lots and lots of security around and so forth. It turned out, actually, he was lovely. The nicest hitman you could ever meet. Um, but, you know, but nonetheless, you, know, you have to have a certain degree of, of, of protection. But as I said, the interesting thing is that um, they didn't have to worry about me. And that, that I think, helped. So perhaps you actually go by the nickname Professor in the Russian <laughs> underworld. <laughs> I'd like to think that was my klitschka, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, our time is running out today. I want to thank you, uh, Eric and Mark, for joining us today. Uh, and I would like everybody to join me in a round of applause. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with uh, UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch all our seminars and interviews. Catch you later. <laughs>